Street Epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. Please follow me on Twitter at MagnaBosco or on Facebook and YouTube at MagnaBosco210. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. This is a conversation between me, Rebecca Fox, and my friend Anthony Magnabosco about our project, How We Let Go. How We Let Go is a portrait of the atheist community based on survey data. When completing the survey, our respondents had the opportunity to let us know if they didn't want to be quoted or preferred to remain anonymous. So don't worry, anyone I quote in this podcast is happy to have their thoughts shared. To find out more about the project, please visit howweletgo.org where you can see the raw data, read my report and watch the animated video. If you want to hear more from me or Anthony, check out my podcast, The Seeker and the Skeptic, and his YouTube channel. Or find us on Twitter. I'm at Rebecca on Paper. He's at Magna Bosco. All right. And here we are in London, England, October 2019. (laughs) Rebecca Fox, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. It's nice to have you here. Yes. uh, For those that don't recognize my voice, this is Anthony Magna Bosco. I happen to be in London to give a talk to the new College of the Humanities. We're in the building where that will be. It's my understanding there's only just a hundred or so students here, or yeah. a couple hundred. It's a fancy building, though. It's fancy. I think this was a university started by A.C. Grayling. That's cool. And he was the last speaker at this atheist uh, group who has invited me to speak tomorrow. Whoa, uh, that's a lot to live up to. They're going to be so disappointed. <laughs> they will, they're going to be oh, so disappointed. I did learn that A.C. Grayling, the A of his name is Anthony. Really? Mm-hmm. What's the C? Two Anthony's. Clifford. Okay, I thought you could say I didn't even bother to find out. I, I, I don't know. No, I did look it up. It just took me a second to access that segment of my hard drive in my brain. But but we're here to talk about the survey that you did and the genesis of it and all the findings and how it might relate to people who are performing street epistemology, whether you're a practitioner of it or you're maybe somebody who um, has somebody, maybe, maybe you were on the receiving end of an SE conversation and you're starting to doubt. Yeah. The results of the survey might be useful or interesting for those folks as well. So we call the survey Letting Go of Beliefs, or I call the survey Letting Go of Beliefs. Was it the survey? Because what it's about, yeah. Are, are we calling the, the final result something different? The, the project, the whole project is called How We Let Go, mm. um, because that's what it's about. It's about how we, as people who used to believe in things yeah. and now don't, and how, how that happened, how we got from A to B. Uh, but the actual survey was calling called Letting Go of Beliefs, so mm-hmm. anyone who filled it out will recognize it by that name. And I did fill it out. Did you Did you take it yourself? I did. You did? I wasn't the first person. Just to troubleshoot it? Or yeah, did you, yeah. To, to get your results in there Well, too? I was truthful, obviously, but yeah, nice. mainly to troubleshoot. Yeah, I remember going through it, and then we, we kind of promoted it on social media as best we could, but we got a lot of, I mean, I thought it was a pretty good response. I was amazed, because I thought this is actually... It's quite an in-depth thing, and we're going to talk about all the questions that I asked in the survey. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them are quite personal, yeah. and it took on, I mean, up to half an hour to complete. So it's not just like a frivolous thing to do, mm-hmm. but people enjoyed doing it. That's what surprised me. People were like responding on Twitter saying, "Oh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this." Yes, which is amazing. Did you? 
Did you say at the start, did you warn people in advance how long it would take? I think... No, I oh, didn't. you didn't? I put a question, the last question was how, how many minutes did it oh, take that's you right. to complete because this? Because we didn't really know. Because I was going to say, I, I seem to remember getting some feedback saying, I didn't realize it would take that long. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh. but most of the feedback I, I received was that they liked the questions and that it was cathartic to them even in some cases. Yeah, so I guess the reason why... I wasn't just doing this as a nice cathartic exercise. It was all selfish. I just wanted to gather data because um, because I I obviously am an atheist now, and I used to be not an atheist. But I thought if I want to make art, and I'm an artist mm -hmm. for this group of people who've been through this, I need to understand their experiences more. I can't just assume that their experiences are the same as mine. So that was my motivation. It sure. was completely artistic. It, I mean, I'm interested in science, and I'm a skeptic, so I have some sort of idea about how science works but mm. it's, it's very vague <laughs> no but I love that I love that inspiration because data from surveys can be so dry and boring mm. and if you're approaching it from the perspective of how can I get some content and then ex share it with people in a in a creative way yeah that's what drew me to your project and we've worked for, for those of you that don't know Rebecca and I have worked on a project before you might remember the how to change minds video which is on my YouTube channel Rebecca did all the artwork for that and uh, that was pretty well received. We ended up translating it into a couple different languages. Too. Yeah, and then we were kind of wrapping up that project. We were, yes, we were wrapping and that I up. And I didn't want to let him off the line, obviously. <laughs> I, <already laughs> I tried to get him. away. <laughs> she kept bringing me back in. Yeah, because that's right, that's, that was wrapping up. And you, I think you just sort of casually mentioned that you were planning to do the survey. And I said, oh, can I help in some way? Maybe you want to do a video, yeah. website. I don't know if that was your original intent or not. Did you always envision it in that way? Um, I don't think so. No, I don't think I envisioned it as anything. I think I just mentioned it to you in an email. Oh, it would be cool to get more data on these people, yeah. on our community. Because that's what we're talking about, really. We're talking about our community, yeah. which is a strange... Especially now, looking at the, the responses I got, because we ended up getting 850 responses, two of which were no good. They were just like... Incomplete. mistakes yeah there was a, like one of repeated somehow so it's actually 848 responses oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> to be precise <laughs> but yeah so we ended up getting a lot of data mm -hmm. and um, it made me realize that when I talk about the atheist community or think about the atheist community before I did the survey I really didn't know what I was talking about and now maybe I know what I'm talking about a little bit mm. because it's so much more diverse sure I'm also thinking that the the time commitment that was required to participate in it says something about maybe the need for these types of yes. surveys. That yeah. maybe there's a there's a desire to share people's stories and, and their experiences. Yeah. So that we can draw some conclusions from it perhaps. That that it's worth it's worth thirty minutes of my time to contribute to this. Yeah. Because it's needed. And I think because we spend so much time talking about um what it was like to be a Christian or what it was like to be a witch for me or what it was like when I was a Muslim or whatever our histories our faith histories are and we spend a lot of time talking about atheism and atheist philosophy mm. but that process of letting go we don't spend much time talking about it apart from in the street epistemology community which is one of the things I love about mm. it because this is the process that you're engaging in with people well, that's a good point I mean you can be engaging let's say I'm an atheist and I'm engaging with a Christian and um, invariably the, the person that I'm speaking with usually wants to know where I stand on it. So mm. I oftentimes do find myself sharing my position and even my journey out, how easy or difficult that yeah. was. So maybe they could, they could relate to it in some way. Like they, they can say, Oh, this wouldn't be the, I wouldn't be the first one going through this. Other people have gone through it. Yeah. So, so I think there could be some value into, um, in sharing your story and how, 
how you found your way out when you are having a conversation with somebody where you're actually challenging why they're in. Yes, yeah. And showing them that there is something there is something there on the others. It's not just like Well, I think it's important to show that yeah, there's something there to catch them. That there's yes. a community there. Yeah. However, but I also think it's important to be upfront with them about the cost. Mm. Because it, and I've actually had a couple of conversations recently that I haven't put on my channel yet where we I met this guy uh, specifically we talk about how he's he doesn't really he's he's choosing to believe that it's true um, because and he gets happiness from it and he's not ready to even explore discarding it there's just too much going on in his life and wow, it's, yeah, yeah it, so it's really kind of these stories I think could be useful for people who are mired in these views yeah yeah it's it's really it's interesting actually because and we'll get into this as we start talking about the specific questions but there are some common themes that come up mm -hmm. so although everyone's experience is going to be indiv individual obviously there are some things that we have all struggled with and that well not all of us but a large majority of people in the atheist community have struggled with and if you are going through that process of letting go of your beliefs it's almost certain that there are other people who are thinking the same things as you and have been that same route as you and by yeah. sort of putting these responses together and trying to make something sort of artistic out mm -hmm. of them hopefully we can demonstrate that to mm. people i think my point was there that it might be easier for people to explore what their life would be like without the belief if they were more aware of other people that have gone through it yeah and what that path could be like yeah and be realistic about it Yes. Like, it's going to be challenging. You could lose friends. You might lose your job. Mm. Your girlfriend. You might lose your girlfriend. Like, be aware of the potential costs that are incurred if you decide to be honest with yourself and acknowledge that I don't have a good reason for thinking that this is true. Yeah. And that's that's what I think this survey will be useful for folks like that, like practitioners of SE, uh, people that are, like I said, maybe uh, that they, they are on the receiving end of an SE conversation, or maybe even people who are doubting or... You know, like we, we talked about like people who reach out for resources like recovering from religion and I think there's a London equivalent of it or an English equivalent of it. I can't remember the name off the top of my head. Okay. But yeah, there we it just, is. We, yeah, we just found out about that yesterday. Like, <laughs> oh, what's the name of it? So, but there, it seems like there's organizations out there that, um, and being semi-affiliated with RFR, I can tell you they get a lot of calls from people who they don't believe it anymore, but they're struggling with those those fears. Yeah. A lot of the fears that that come with you know, having to rebuild and find meaning and purpose and some of those legacy fears that are out there from the from the religion itself. It was, I mean, the answers that I got, because this was 36 questions in the survey, but it, on, under every question, there's a, a sort of box to leave your thoughts mm -hmm. under almost every question. Um, so I had people just pouring out their hearts to me, coming in, That's like incredible. sharing. That's that. incredible to me. It was intense. It was emotionally intense for me. I'm not complaining. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was to have this, like... 850 people telling me how they their fears and how they felt <laughs> this is all happening around um, Christmas time as well mm. so it's like this heightened emotional time I live in the UK so it's dark all the time as well and I've just got my little glowing screen and people's messages coming in oh interesting well it's funny because I often have those same feelings I think when I'm engaging with somebody and they're expressing doubt and I had another conversation where somebody literally asked me okay so if that's not a good way for concluding that this God is real what are good ways for figuring out if something is true? Mm. And it sparked this wonderful dialogue about how we can, what is a good way for figuring that out? And, and we started exploring some other ideas there. 
I think that it's like um, you can't help but read or hear, talk to people who are seriously thinking about their beliefs and exploring them and not start self-reflecting and mm-hmm. analysing your own. So you're always in that process. It's never like an, an end point where you've got mm-hmm. it all figured out. You're always... And that's what this, this yeah. hearing all these people's responses did for me. It just like yes. it took me back to thinking about my journey and my yes. experiences and my beliefs. And, and yes, and the, the beauty of having those dialogues too is you, you get to see that they're quite emotional for me, even as the questioner. So yeah. I can only imagine what it must be as the, as the person on the receiving end of the questions. But it's, it's, it's humbling to watch people kind of struggle a little bit with your questions and maybe realize they don't have good reasons for thinking that yeah. it's true. And for you to get a taste of that when you were just going through the results of the survey <laughs> is really fascinating because I, I tend to experience that when I'm engaging with people. So we should talk about the boring stuff, the actual demographics, who these people were. Okay. Who these 800 Let's try to make it as people. interesting as possible. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So we've got um, ages first. We've got the majority between 40 and 60, uh, with a large minority in the 25 to 39 bracket. Mm. I think this is possibly skewed by the fact we we're promoting it on Twitter. Yeah, I don't think we can say this is an accurate portrait of the atheist community because mm. we're, we are only reaching the people we're reaching and apparently Twitter skews young like 18 to 29. Oh, so, oh interesting. You think, oh, okay. I thought you were saying you thought more older people were replying because of Twitter. but No, the opposite. the opposite. Yeah, I think um, huh. I think maybe our data is skewed young because of the way we share it. What percentage was the, the younger people? So we've got a large minority. I don't have, don't have the exact numbers mm-hmm. right at hand, but we've got a large minority in the 25 to 39 bracket. But the majority... Oh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, it would have been nice to get some more teenagers and, and college students. Yes. You know, like, yeah. I'm, ta- I'm thinking like 15 to 22. I wish I'd asked what they were doing, what their occupation was. Mm. As we talk, as we talk about this, we're going to come across the limitations of me not being a scientist and not knowing quite the right questions. You know, it'd be really interesting. Well, I don't know how much more work you want to take on with this, but <laughs> if there was a survey specifically for the a younger demographic, yeah. and then compare the results to this older. That would be cool. That's, age. but that's actually something someone could do if they're kind of data minded, because yes. we're going to release this data, right? And you can dig through it and yes. do what you want with it. It will be anonymized, obviously. So if you filled out the survey, don't worry, I'm not going to release your data. But an anonymized version of the data that I've collected will be released so that people can see if there's any interesting trends they pick up. That reminds me that that was one part that you wanted to, to, I guess, incorporate into this project that other people, you're hoping that this inspires other people to take the data and, and, and run with it or exactly, try to do yeah. other things with it or maybe do some other brand new survey or something. Yeah. Can, yeah, there's, I, think there's a, I think there's a real hunger for this type of information in this community. Yeah. I, I'm not aware of anything really being out there this detailed. I've looked around and I haven't found anything. I found it's actually a really understudied area. Um, religious deconversion is what they call it in the scientific literature, in the sociological literature. Um, I don't know why it's understudied. I, and to me, it's fascinating. Um, it could be that it's hard to get people to talk about this, or mm. I don't know exactly why, but it seems like it's... An, um, in fact, I've read papers that start the beginning of the paper where they're like, this is a hugely understudied area, blah, blah, blah. And that's why our paper's huh. so important. But I haven't found anything with as big a sample size as I've got here. Oh, that's interesting. Well, there might be a lot of people who are atheists, but they're not out. Yes, that's very true. Was that one of the questions? Mm, let's see. Are you out with your family? Because yeah, that might be that might, might be another interesting way that piece, somebody can go with this information. We definitely had people commenting saying that they weren't out with their family. Okay. Um, but I don't think I had a specific question mm. about. Mm. Mm. Anyway, so. Um, because if somebody's not out with their family, they may be less less reluctant or 
less more likely, to, yeah, for that more reluctant thing. to participate yeah. in a survey where they're yeah. admitting that. There's all sorts of things that um, I guess this is what you know people who do social sciences think about all the time, but haven't occurred to me necessarily. The selection biases of like who's coming to your survey and who's filling it out that influences. Mm -hmm. Just like the fact that we propagated it on Twitter, it's the easiest way to propagate it, and it makes sense. But it does influence what we have. Um, and like you say, yeah. people are more, we don't just have a random sampling of atheists, we have a sampling of atheists who were on the social media platforms where this was spread mm -hmm. and who were willing to sit down and do it. Exactly. Yeah. So, exactly. Uh, what else? Um, demographic stuff. Gender, we had 62.4% male. Mm -hmm. Again, men are more common on Twitter, apparently. That's something mm. I came across. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of theories about... Um, why uh, we might have more men in the atheist community than women, but I actually think 62.4 is pretty close to 50-50, like, as far as it goes. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's necessarily particularly interesting or important, but that these are the people we're talking about. And they came from 44 different countries, but as you might expect, the majority from the US, 67.7% mm -hmm. from the US. That very well may just have to do with who decided to like retweet our tweets yes, and yeah. share it on their platforms. Yeah. Uh, maybe we just didn't break through those other. I mean, obviously, we would have loved to have had eight thousand four hundred eighty, eight hundred forty responses rather than uh, eight forty eight. Was that the exact yes. number? Yeah. I mean, the more obviously, the more data would have been great. But uh, this was really just kind of word of mouth type of thing. Yeah. So yeah. we're t we're talking about young people, um, men and women, mainly from America, mm -hmm. and eighty eight point two percent former Christians. The rest are Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, oh, and neo-pagans, but Christian. mainly Christian, yeah. Yeah, former Christian. Former Christian, yeah. Mm. I think that, I mean, that to me sounds about right for the atheist community. I think so, at least in, in, the, the, in the United I'm States in, yeah. and England, probably. Yeah. So yeah, if it was broadened out, then... Yeah, you know, it would have been interesting if um, some of the like ex-Muslims in North America or some other organizations help promote this. Oh, that would have been amazing, yeah. some more diversity there. But uh, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Because there's a lot of Christians in the United States. <laughs> there are a handful of other... Um, I was I used to be a witch, as I said earlier, and there were a handful of other witches and neo-pagans. Mm. I think there's like 10 of us, something like that. So I wonder if that's because... Coven. <laughs> I wonder if that's because of your podcast and you, you, you attract possible. some former Wiccans, maybe, yeah. or even current ones. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> Uh, so the next... Check out the Skeptors and Seekers podcast. <laughs> okay. um, so this is really interesting for, um, for SEers listening. Uh, one of the early on questions, the sort of demographic questions, was which statement best characterizes your involvement with street epistemology? Hmm. And because you retweeted this and mm -hmm. it's in your circles, we would expect that to be high. We all, I think we even posted it in some of the SE communities. Yeah. So it, was, it went beyond Twitter, but largely in the SE bubble community you know so most people the largest um, percentage we have is 28.3 percent answered I'm interested and know a little bit a little bit about it huh that's the sort of level third, uh, almost a third yeah um, we that's have good. but almost as many 25.7 percent say what is street epistemology huh. <laughs> okay so folks we have some work to do <laughs> yeah well do you want to give a quick like a plug <laughs> yeah because there might be people listening who don't know oh my gosh Hmm. Well, street epistemology, if you're not already aware of it, you need to look into it. It's a way where you can use questions to engage with a person on a belief, usually a very deeply held one that's tied to their identity. If you've ever done that in the past, you probably realize it doesn't work out very well, especially <laughs> if you present facts or challenge the person 
and um, and elicit sort of a defensive response from them. Street epistemology is where you're calm and respectful and you listen. You don't build build uh, straw men to knock over. Let me let me hear your best argument and let me repeat it back to you so that you agree with it and say that's the best way that I've ever heard it verbalized. And uh, but not stopping there. Yeah. Pushing back with questions and seeing why do you think that this is true and how did you determine that that's a good reason for thinking that it's true? And those types of questions can be extremely powerful for individuals that have beliefs that they were absolutely certain were true but maybe never explored it. Or maybe they have and they never realize that the reasons that they're giving for these beliefs aren't the real reasons why. So it, it tends to kind of peel back all these layers and get to the tr get to the true foundation of what's holding this belief up. And then uh, once a person tends to realize that they don't have a good reason or maybe their method is unreliable, we tend to end the conversation there so that they can go home and they can think about it and maybe find better reasons for it or maybe lower their confidence in the belief. And it's a really beautiful thing to watch. I mean, it's a kind of practice. It's, it's like practical philosophy. I mean, it's based on the Socratic method. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, for you 25.7% who, who haven't, haven't heard, heard of it, haven't heard of it. <laughs> you should go check out Anthony's channel. Oh yeah, um, We'll put links in the show notes and everything so you can find out Yeah, more. just do a search for street epistemology. You'll On YouTube would probably be a great place to start or there's streetepistemology.com and you can see examples. I, in my view, watching people do it is the quickest way to grasp the concepts. Yeah. And and like, like you were mentioning, watching the person think about these views and seeing how powerful the, the questions can be and how they respond and think about it is is it's almost addictive even as a viewer but it, more, more so i think as a practitioner to really engage with a person yeah. where they're thinking about it and they're grateful afterwards for it having done it <laughs> it's so rewarding so yeah if, if you if you have a chance please look into street epistemology if you haven't already so um one of the things i really wanted to figure out and i wasn't sure how to do this i had to do a bit of research was what the sort of strength of people's beliefs were so we're all hmm. the people we're surveying here are all atheists now but if they can imagine back to when they did believe oh, good how much did they believe so was you're almost asking like, for like their level of confidence that it was true exactly back when yeah. they thought oh yeah okay that's a good question um, and so, i took the survey but it's been so long i don't remember these questions anymore <laughs> so the, i found a tool called the santa clara strength of religious faith questionnaire which is a 10 item scale used by people who study religion um it basically is 10 questions and you're, you have to answer whether you agree, agree strongly, disagree or disagree strongly. And then depending on which you choose, they're rated from one to four and then you add up the score and you get a score. There's sort of questions like, I pray daily or mm. my faith is an important part of who I am as a person. Ah, good or question. I enjoy being around others who share my faith. That's the sort of character of the questions. Mm. So I Back when you were a believer. Yeah, so I translated those questions into the past tense. So mm -hmm. I pray daily became, I communed with the divine through prayer, ritual, or other means daily. It's a bit clumsy, but I didn't want to like, because not everyone prays, sure. but they still have that experience. My faith is an important part of who I am as a person, just simply translated to my faith beliefs were an important part of who I, who I was as mm. a person. And I enjoy being around others who share my faith. Simply, I enjoyed being around others who shared my faith beliefs. Mm -hmm. I, now, this, now that you're reading these, I remember we had a little bit of a discussion going on about the word, the use of the word faith. Yeah, so tricky. And, yes, that, that, that is such a tricky word. And here it seems like you're equating the word with belief. Is that right? Well, I'm trying to distinguish between beliefs we have about the world, like um, political beliefs, 
and religious beliefs. Okay, so when you say faith belief, you mean like um, supernatural views? Yes, yeah. Rather than uh, my view on Brexit or something? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was was hard. I couldn't come up with a better phrase. Mm -hmm. Um, And that seemed to be working more or less. Yeah, I um, I didn't push back on it when you replied back with some, you had a a good explanation for it. (laughs) Okay, she's thought it through. I did, yeah, I did think about it, and I tried a couple of other things, but I couldn't find anything else that captured, because I didn't want to, yeah. I wanted to capture people who believed in things that aren't sort of as traditional religions, so like someone who, who used to believe in, who got really into tarot cards, or, because that's the kind of world, that's what we talk about on our podcast, and that's the world that I was in, I was mm-hmm. in a more sort of spiritual world. And you would roll it under faith belief. Yes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so. Yeah. Those, those are the sort of questions that um, the Santa Clara Strength of Religious Faith questionnaire asks. Okay. And I can tell you the respondents' mean average was 25.9 out of a possible 40 points, which means nothing to you. But the yeah. av- <laughs> well, sociologists <laughs> of religion have done here. this a lot, um, and they come up with the average believer falls between 26 and 33. So our group of people are right in the middle of average. Well, mm-hmm. no, they're right at the beginning of average, actually. So 40 would be... Okay. Complete belief. So I'm envisioning zero a bell curve. would be nothing. Yeah. And we're talking, sort of, we're getting right yeah. in this. Yeah, we're we're average okay. as atheists. Okay. <laughs> well, our 848 friends sure. who got on the survey, we're all average. Mm-hmm. It's kind of I was expecting something or hoping for something a bit more dramatic, but I did think maybe, like, if you're a really hardcore believer, then you may never think to question your beliefs, and if you're a really casual believer, again, you might not think to question because it's not a big part of your life. Sure. So maybe the average strength of belief is exactly the sort of person. Who ends up questioning them? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. But I do, I do have your score right Let's here. Let's go through. I'm <laughs> curious now. What I, I see now, when I went through the survey, I had no idea that I'd be like talking about it with the person <laughs> who who put the survey together and with people listening. So boy, I'm a little nervous here. <laughs> so do you want to hear mine or yours first? And who do you think is higher? Do you want to put some money on it? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I put some money on it. I think I think you're way higher than me. Really? Yes. I don't know whether to take that as a compliment or not. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning, I think you were more committed to it than me, mm. right? That's kind of what we're talking about? Yes, yeah, yeah exactly. The commitment to it yeah. or the the level to which we actually thought it was true. Yes. Okay. So, yes. I, well, I don't, really, I don't know that much about your history with these views, mm. but um, I was pretty, from what I remember, I was pretty hands-off on it. Like, I, I, was, I was immersed in it, but I never really thought it was true even at a young age. Yeah. Which is why I th- I'm thinking I'm much lower than you. Okay, so remember the average believer comes between 29 and 33, and our respondents came out as a mean average of 25.9 out of 40. You are 28, and I'm 29. So you're right, right. I am ever so slightly higher than you, but not by much. Barely indistinguishable. Yeah. Huh. So we're quite representative of the people we Yeah, we fall right in there. Yeah. Hmm. It would be interesting to see, and this is something that someone who's more data savvy could do with the data, and again, links in the show notes if you want to get into this, to see if SEers um, differ from your average atheists. Because oh, you could do that. You could go oh, through sure. and see the people who... Who answered up. this question and where they were yeah. in that chart. I mean, one could do that. I yeah. couldn't do that. You're done. But one you don't, could do you're it. done with the data. You've been looking at the data long enough. <laughs> yeah. You hear that, folks? Rebecca's tired of looking at this data. Come in here and help her out with some of this. Um, so, yeah, as I said, my, like my beliefs were all kind of less traditional religious and more woo-woo type things. So I was really interested in paranormal as well as spiritual beliefs. Mm. So um, I asked about what, I think I put paranormal slash spiritual beliefs you held. And the vast majority of people answered life after death, 86%. 
which is not surprising because that's Christianity, right? That's what they thought of in the past. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. That that's the belief tenet. they used to hold. Sure. Yeah. That's extremely common. Um, I have a really nice quote actually from Dana. She said, at the time, I really wanted to believe it was supernatural, but it's such a stretch. I learned a close friend of mine had died in a car accident. When I was on the phone, a ray of sunlight was shining into the room. I wanted to believe it was a sign she wasn't gone. That's really typical. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the sort of, like when I say I'm getting emotional when mm-hmm. these are coming in, that's mm-hmm. what I'm hearing. Um, yeah. It reminds me of some of the comments that people leave on my videos when I encounter somebody who says a butterfly, my husband died, a butterfly landed on my shoulder and when I was in the garden, and that was obviously a sign. Yeah. And yet, uh, after getting the go-ahead from the person, I continued questioning that view. And there, some of the comments were, is that really what we should should be doing? Mm. Should we let people have these views even though they're not true? Yeah. And so it's kind of it can be kind of a dicey situation. But yeah, it's lovely. It's it's a lovely visual. It's a lovely idea that it's a lovely belief to think that it's true. Yeah. Even though we have no good reason for thinking it's the case. Yeah. So maybe the bigger question there is, which do you value more? Do you value the truth more? Are you willing to accept some hard truths and have to let go of some of these? these comfort blankets possibly. yeah and that that's exactly what people like dana have done and like that's what that's what moved me about reading these responses the the bravery of what a lot of mm-hmm. these people have done because when we talk about letting go of beliefs i mean it's and maybe you could just think of it in sort of abstract i'm letting go of this list of tenants like a bullet pointed list of tenants like god is real and i know there's life after death whatever your your list is for your religion but it's not just that people are letting go of the belief that you know there's someone that they love yeah. It's still, it's still it's almost, present somehow. It's like a second death. Yeah. But the bravery that those folks have gone, required to get to where they're at now, it's not, a lot of people aren't aware that they did that. Yes, yeah. And, and that's what I love about this survey and this project is that hopefully it calls attention to this idea that people are brave enough to face their views and set aside things that, that uh, provide them with tremendous meaning and value and comfort. But if they're not true, they're willing to set those aside and grow further. Yeah. And that takes courage. That takes bravery. And it's important for people who might be on the fence about their views to see that. Mm. That uh, if, if you have the personal fortitude, you can get through it. Yeah. It, it can be done. And the other side might actually be better than the side that you were in. Well, no spoilers. We get to those questions mm, in the end about okay. whether really? people think they're better off or not. Oh, okay. Um, mm. On a slightly lighter note for paranormal spiritual beliefs, we had 10.2% believe in cryptids. I remember when I did this survey, you, you, said, you said, what's a cryptid? <laughs> not yeah. Everyone knows what a cryptid is. <laughs> so I, I changed it to uh, legendary creatures unknown to science. <laughs> so that's stuff like Bigfoot, Big yeah, mm-hmm. Nessie. Mm-hmm. But weirdly... Dragons. Dragons came up a lot. That's one of the most popular. Bigfoot, hmm. Nessie, and dragons were the three things. So this was a... Was Game can, of Thrones popular around this time? You know what I think it's from? I think it's from the Bible. There are 21 references to dragons in the Old Testament. Is that right? Yeah, I just looked up on Bible study tool. Huh. Yeah. But I would think that people who are reading the Bible and they discover dragons are in there... I, I, if I discover it, I would think, oh my gosh, what... No, that can't possibly. That must be a typo or something. I, I wouldn't be <laughs> like twenty-one cool, times. My religion has dragons. <laughs> I, I'd be. I'd be like. I'd put my head down in shame. I oh, know, I was that, like, that I would should be put me. it on the cover of the Bible. <laughs> it much more exciting. But I, I think it just aligns it too closely with fiction. Yeah, I guess so. The, the, um, apparently in uh, Ken Ham's Creation Museum, he has a big banner. If you do a search for this on Google Images, I think you can see the banner that's saying, "Were dragons dinosaurs?" or "Were 
Like, oh. That's the implication that mm. when they refer to dragons in the Bible, they're actually talking about dinosaurs. But yeah, a, a lot of the people here, I mean, it was only 10.2% um, who said they believed in cryptids at all. And then okay. Bigfoot and Nessie won out over dragons, but dragons came third place, mm. which is really surprising to well, me. Well, it's also interesting that even though you might let go of your God belief, I've run into a lot of atheists who think that there's... Well, I haven't run into anyone maybe that has said that they thought Bigfoot was real. Actually, I think I've had some Bigfoot talks, mm. and maybe they were theists. My point is, <laughs> is that uh, just because you get rid of a God belief doesn't mean that you get rid of all supernatural beliefs. Yeah. You can still hold views that maybe I have a soul or that uh, karma is real or something along those lines. Yeah. Ghosts. I, I met a lot of atheists who will, will swear that ghosts are real. That's very, very strange to me because for me, atheism and skepticism are like, they mm. came together in my life. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've had the same experience. I've met lots of atheists who believe in all sorts of strange things. The other thing that came up, um, we had 14.8% people, including someone right here with me, who said they used to believe in visitations from extraterrestrials. Yes. Explain yourself. Okay. <laughs> Gosh, this wasn't, this is probably, there was a period of time, maybe it was a year period of time, where I was really into Ancient Aliens, the TV show. Oh, uh, it's really cool. Yeah, I still watch like, that. I love the, I, I think I was, I'm being completely real here, I think... I think I was just in love with the idea that aliens were real because mm. I really want aliens to be real. And there was finally a show by, yeah, supporting something that I want to be true. Yeah. So I was really enamored with it. And now I can't even I can't even bother to watch a second of it because I'm just like, <laughs> this is just such trash. So um, that, that I think is why I answered that way, that uh, there was a short period of time where I just was, I love, I love the idea of, I want there to be life on other planets. Yeah. To the point where I was I was really desperate for evidence to support it. Mm. And, and that idea that there's life on other planets, that's pretty plausible to me. I think it's plausible. Yeah. Just yeah, the I, idea that they're actually visiting us and we, building we, pyramids. That's, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> that's way yeah, out. There's, there's mostly, let's say there's fairly certainly microbial life out there, mm. probably. Yeah. Um, are there fish under the ice of Europa? Could Maybe. be. I mean, if evolution is a natural process and if the conditions are just right and there's enough time, I... I'm going way off on a tangent here, but I, yes, I answered yes to that. There was a point there. This made me wonder like about, um, like what I'm thinking of as belief clusters, you know, the way like people will believe like a little package of beliefs. So for example, conspiracies, yeah, conspiracies are a great example. Mm -hmm. Often people believe contradictory conspiracies because they just love believing in conspiracies. Right. Like they have that sort of brain makeup or whatever. And then and like, why do beliefs cluster? Is it like, are there certain personality types that are drawn to certain types of belief? Or is it they have a certain epistemology that leads them to say, that sounds right to all these certain things? That's I don't a know. good question. I mean, I'm, I'm a very, I love science. So maybe this was like the perfect, like the whole aliens mm, concept yeah. was like the perfect meld of my, my diminishing credulity mixed with my um, love of science. Perhaps. Yeah. And it was just at the right moment where a TV show came along and I am sort of drawn to it. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there is a certain type of personality who's drawn to certain beliefs. Mm. There has been some research on sure. um, uh, paranormal beliefs and personality and the psychology of it. There's a great book called Harvey, by Harvey Irwin called The Psychology of Paranormal Belief, which I'd recommend anyone check out. Mm. And he notices a couple of things, and I don't have it in front of me, so I don't remember off the top of my head, but openness to experience, that's huh. high, um, creativity, all those sort of measures. Um, and if you combine that with a, a not particularly um, 
and this is not an insult because I was in the same boat, but not particularly great critical thinking skills. <laughs> you're very open, but you're not very good at defining what you should let in mm. or not. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. maybe, I don't know. Again, that could be something that people could look through the data and For figure sure. out more about. So the next one that I was really excited to see how people responded <laughs> was, have you ever had an experience that at the time you characterized as spiritual, mystical or supernatural? And we had 56.4% of people saying yes, mm. which is actually quite low. Um, a Gallup poll, uh, I don't know when it was taken, um, but recently, the most recent one I could find, said 71% of Americans have had a paranormal spiritual does this, experience. Does this include the night uh, the night visitations? Yeah, so yeah. that's what kept coming up, sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis, yeah. Have you ever experienced that? No, but I think my son has it. Oh, no. And I think my wife has uh, may, may have it too, because we were talking about this at one point and because my, my daughter and I were like like what this really happens to you this is a thing it's really scary and they both piped yeah. up like yeah it's real it's true it happens <laughs> we're, we were locked like we're locked in it's basically when you're um when your mind wakes up before your body does so mm-hmm. when you when you're asleep your body is paralyzed so you don't act up your act out your dreams well unless you have like a sleep disorder um you know a sleepwalking disorder but for most of us our body is paralyzed um, so that we don't wave our arms and legs around. <laughs> you have it too? Uh, I have had it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that happens, it actually happens usually at times of stress or, you know, if there's a problem, a general sleep problem, uh, if you drink a lot before you go to bed, there's mm-hmm. all sorts of things that can make it happen. But you wake up before you're ready to and your brain is still generating all the scary imagery mm-hmm. from your dreams. Well, it's still generating dream energy, imagery, um, but because your body is all paralyzed it's scary and so often in fact almost always you it takes a sort of scary form and you'll see something above you that's what oh, people I see, see. So, yeah it's just a psychological phenomenon but the, it's, the possible fear that you're deriving from not being able to move your body yeah. is generating the fearful thoughts which are manifesting in a dream but it's because you're awake you're seeing it in your room oh dang yeah that's, an, that's it's horrible. i didn't realize that okay that's interesting let me explain it so this is what julian said one of our respondents he said i woke up and couldn't move i felt like someone was sitting on my chest and i was sure it was the ghost of my cousin's grandmother we were staying at her house i'd never met her i've since learned this is a common phenomenon hmm. and that lots of people said that they said i was really freaked out at the time but now i find out what it is hmm. i actually i didn't have my first sleep paralysis experience until after i knew what it was so that was all right. See, somebody was asking me what it would take for me to believe in a god or a ghost, and they were giving me these hypothetical mm. situations. And I can't remember the hypotheticals they were they were putting me in, but I think I would say like, if something happened to me, I'd I'd want to explore and figure out what the explanation was, rather than coming up with an explanation. Yeah. And that might be a personality difference there too, where a lot of people might say, well. Something happened to me. I don't know the explanation. It must be ghosts. Yeah. They make that leap that some people don't make. And I don't know why some people do and some people don't. Well, I think... It could be upbringing. It could be their personalities. A combination of both. Something else. Years ago, I had a conversation with a guy, a South American guy. I can't remember exactly where he was from. And he was saying he had sleep paralysis. Terrible sleep paralysis. Um, And he figured out that it wasn't demons. But he didn't know what it was. uh, It was just a strange thing. It was like a strange nightmare. And he was describing it to me. And I was like, I know what that is. It's sleep paralysis. It's got a name. Which made him feel a bit better, I think. But he said he didn't talk about it when he was back home. He lived in quite a rural area. And he knew that if he talked about it, it would be explained in terms of the religion. Of course. And he didn't want to go there. Because he didn't want people to say, oh, "Oh, maybe you're possessed or anything. Yeah. 
So he just avoided explanations. He, just, he never spoke or... about it. He knew it was something scary that happened to him. And um, he he wasn't, I guess he wasn't, he was doubting or he wasn't religious. Yeah. Or he was somewhere in the middle anyway. Um, so he, he didn't think that he was possessed by a demon, but he knew if he spoke about it to anyone, that would be the interpretation he was given. So he just didn't talk about it. Until he got mm. to the UK and started, he, he moved to live here and spoke to a few people about it. And then he spoke to me, and I was like, I know what that is. Wow. Go look it up on Wikipedia. I have to wonder, though, if there... Because we talk about the backfire effect a lot in, mm. in street epistemology, but I, I'm wondering, when somebody's convinced that they had a visitation from Jesus, and it likely was maybe this, sleep yeah. paralysis, or a demon, giving them evidence to show a possible explanation for it sometimes is not readily received. Yeah, now, this, was, this was years before. Now, if it's a fearful thing that they want to stop, they might be more open to accepting the explanation. Yeah. But if they really think, like, no, I, I couldn't move, and that was my grandfather in the room sitting on my bed conversing with me. Mm. Like, maybe it was a positive experience. I, I don't know. Are all sleep paralysis instances negative and scary? They, as far as I've read, me and Kat, my podcast partner, we did an episode about this, um, and almost all of the ones we read were negative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It seems... Because it's scary okay. to wake up and not be able to move. So people might be more accepting, willing to accept the scientific explanation if it puts an yeah. end to their discomfort. Exactly. And the, often this is an explanation given by um, people who look into uh, alien abduction phenomena. Because that thing of being... Uh, waking up and then there's a presence in your room and it's right. like looming over you and you're paralyzed. I mean, that sounds a lot like how people mm. start to describe an alien abduction scenario. So, there's but no one, no one in our survey mentioned they've been abducted by aliens huh. or indeed at all. But okay, yeah. that's all. That's good to know. Um, <laughs> the the other thing that came up a lot and we referenced this in our video and did some drawings to illustrate it is mm -hmm. a lot of people said they experienced the presence of God. Or they experienced what they thought at the time was an experience yes. of the presence Actually, of God. Actually, that's one thing that I'm thinking that we didn't maybe make clear enough for people that we're, we're taking the results of this, this survey yeah. and not only talking about it here, but there's an accompanying video that will go with it that breaks it down in these really lovely drawings and charts and there's this modest animation <laughs> to, and, and voiceovers and all this stuff uh, to really convey this information in, in a really pleasing format to make it a little bit more shareable tolerable yeah. for people again we'll put a link in the show note but maybe maybe people are coming here because they've they've already seen the video and they want more they're hungry that's, for what, more. that's something yeah so maybe people saw the survey or they they, they stumbled across this podcast episode or mm -hmm. maybe they're coming they've stuck they've seen the video already and now yeah. they're here yeah so I, I have a quote um to sort of illustrate this experience of what people are describing what what i described as experiencing the presence of god that they've ticked and said yes um, after hours of fasting and prayer, I heard a voice that I believed at the time was God. I also used to feel a full body tingling through meditation and prayer and would walk around for hours feeling that tingling, feeling as though my awareness to my surroundings was heightened. The full body tingling happened more than a hundred times in my life. Mm. That's, that sounds like what I experience when I, like sometimes when I'm in deep meditation mm -hmm. and I certainly experienced back in the day when I was having spiritual experiences. I hear this a lot too when I talk to people. And I think it's so important to acknowledge that they are likely feeling that. Yes. Yeah. It's it's. I've seen people in the past do it. I probably did it in the past where I'd say, well, there's an explanation for it, and it's not what you think that it is. Mm. Like dismissing, d d try not to dismiss the experiences that they're that they're reporting because they're, they're, they 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 seem profound. Yeah. And you can really look like an asshole if you just brush it off. <laughs> so accept it. Um, where you can push back though is say. How can we actually figure out what caused those feelings? Like those feelings are real. The tingling was real. There, there yeah. was something that resulted in you having those feelings. 
how can we be sure what the cause really was? Let's get into the method. It's actually kind of similar to the sleep paralysis thing. It's like the experience is an experience that someone had, but the interpretation is where we're interested in talking about yeah. whether they got it right or not. Yes. How can we figure out if your interpretation is actually correct? Mm. Yeah. I think um, I looked up, because I was interested to see how different cultures and stuff interpreted these things, because I think a lot of people have this experience and then they think, um, this proves that my religion, whichever, that most people here, Christian religion, um, is definitely true. But people cross-culturally have these experiences. Mm. Um, it's called, um, or there's something very similar phenomenon called pity, I might be pronouncing that wrong, in the Buddhist tradition. And they've actually broken it down into five stages. They like, you can go from one to five. Number one okay. is weak rapture, only causes goosebumps. All the way up to number five, which sounds like what our anonymous respondents was describing, fulfilling rapture seems to be a huge flood of a mountain stream. How it's a beautiful way to describe it. How interesting. Yeah. And as we point out in the video, this is not just a human phenomenon. I mean, Jane Goodall, the primatologist, thinks she's noticed chimps experiencing something similar when they're staring at waterfalls. Like no they just kidding. rock backwards and forwards. Yeah. Ooh, that's nice. I mean, it's it's speculation. We don't know what's going on in a monkey's sure. mind. But sure. Interesting. It's yeah, just something sure. that pe people yeah. and primates do. I, I think maybe as skeptics and atheists, we, we have a tendency to dismiss those things. Mm when uh, one of the most important things you can do is acknowledge that, that they likely experienced it. Yeah. And um, uh, that tends to open a person up to be willing to explore their method for getting there. So the next section of the survey was all about people's doubts. Um, mm. So I wanted to get an idea of what people's doubts were and when they started having them. So I asked, at what age did you start questioning your faith beliefs? What did I answer on this one? Do you oh, I don't have yours. You don't do you remember? That? It's probably nine or ten years old. Yeah, that sounds fine. I did look, but I, for some reason oh, okay. I didn't write it down yeah. here on my doc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, yeah, I remember being a young kid and questioning it. I thought everyone was making it up. Everyone was pretending to trick the kids, just like with Santa Claus. Wow. So I was a skeptical kid from, from the start. <laughs> yeah. We had 67.8% um, uh, started questioning their faith beliefs under 24, under the age of 24. Huh, um, that's high. Yeah. And then um, out of that 67.8, 44.1 were under 18. And I kind of okay. wish I'd broken down this into smaller increments, because mm. I can't give you much more detail than that. For example, it would be nice to know when they started doubting and when did they discard yes. that gap. Yeah. Because did they start doubting at 18 but discard at 50? Mm. I think that gap would be really interesting to know. I don't have it at my fingertips, but I think if you go to the survey data, Ooh, if you're interested to out? find out, you might be able to see that. I think okay. there was a question about um, how long it took from the beginning of questioning to being sort of settled in, I'm sure, of myself. That okay. I've let go. Um, I thought um, it would have been better to have, instead of just having under 18, I would have liked to know when people like you who start questioning when they're actually children compared to teenagers. Mm. And I was Actually thinking, having them put an age down rather yeah, than a range. Yeah, but mm -hmm. then that makes the data harder to go through on my end. So. <laughs> Although you could probably group it after the fact and put That's it back in, in categories. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, so obviously the next question leading on from that is, did you speak to anyone about your doubts or did you keep them secret? What, what was it like for you at 10 years old? I verbalized my doubts to my parents and they were horrified. <laughs> and they sat me down with a priest and a nun for like 30 minutes to explain wow. how it's all true. And then at the end of the short talk, they asked me if I believed it. And I said, yes, but I didn't. Oh. I lied because I could tell that it was important to them. So I just went through the motions. And then there was one more opportunity when I was, uh, I was raised in the Catholic church. 
and I was uh, getting confirmed. This is when you're like in eighth grade, and they think that you're old enough to make a statement of faith. That you well, that's hope. like your early teenage years. I don't know what it's eighth probably, grade yeah, means. Yeah, I think I was maybe thirteen. Is it thirteen years old? Thirteen or fourteen, maybe. And you go to classes for confirmation, and they're very clear. You don't get confirmed unless you believe that this is true. So I went home to my parents, and they were all excited about confirmation. I said, I've got some bad news for you. <laughs> I can't get confirmed because I don't believe it, and it's a requirement. Wow. And they said, just pretend. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's heartbreaking. I didn't view it as heartbreaking at the time. Yeah. But looking back, I do view it as heartbreaking. Yeah. Like, oh, why didn't you embrace that? Like, why didn't you just go with it? Yeah. And then you just went back and went through the motions yeah. and got confirmed. Yeah. Wow. Oh, so we had um, <laughs> back to the survey. Back to the numbers where I'm safe. <laughs> Let's get away from this sort of dangerous emotional territory. <laughs> Let me just put a cap on that. I did have a conversation with one of my parents recently where they had, re they had expressed some regret for having done that. Yeah. And I said, you know, honestly, when I look back on it, it's not like I harbor any ill will that mm. you made me go through it because I don't think that it's true anyways. Yeah. So in that respect, it's not like I'm I'm angry that they made me do it. Yeah. But maybe I'm a little bit disappointed that um, they didn't just take my word for it. Yeah. It was more maybe about appearances. Yeah, I guess than, it's... Than honoring my wishes. I think that's it. It's very complicated. Um, mm -hmm. well, like, again, like I said, we think of, uh, you know, your religion or your your faith beliefs is just this list of things that you believe. But actually, it's like all this is the network of your community and how you relate to your community and all like. There's social how, positioning. There's exactly. cost. There's I'm the I'm the oldest of four. So what's the implication of Anthony, the oldest kid in the family, not not believing this? So. Yeah, it's gonna be like a Mexican wave. What? A what? <laughs> Mexican way. What is that? It's like when one person puts their hands up in the air at a football game, and then oh. the next person puts their hands up, and then Why the next person... Why is it Mexican? Person... I have no idea. It's just oh. what they're called. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You just got really awkward that was now. That's a bad analogy. Anyway. We just called a wave. <laughs> so, 41.4% um, said they spoke to a few confidants, but didn't speak, like, generally mm -hmm. to people. And 25.7% spoke to no one. That's huge, I think. Wow. That's, that's like over a quarter of people just dealt with this on their own, in their own. Boy, if there's if that doesn't speak volumes for the need for something like recovering from religion or the, the English equivalent of that. Yeah. Because I think having a space where it's completely safe and you're anonymous and you're just speaking, just a voice at the end, a, a, you know, a knowledgeable... Yeah friendly voice mm -hmm. on the other end of the phone. Although now I do wonder how many of those people wanted to reach out but mm. didn't know where to go or they knew those resources were there but they just didn't want to reach yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, if there's one thing that I hope people walk away from this survey is that there's a community and there are resources out mm. there for you if you're on the fence about this, if you're starting to question, if you're starting to doubt. Um, it's a very scattered, diverse community, and we have lots of... There's fringe elements to, to the community <laughs> that's are waiting for you. But, on the most part, we're pretty friendly and, and loving and human. Yes, I mean, and that is why we are strange and there are fringe elements, because we're human, just like anyone else. Like, there's, there's weirdos amongst the atheists. But <laughs> that's, that's what it means to be a human being. Some of us are weird. So again, on doubts, I asked, was there a particular big question or problem with your beliefs that troubled you first? And this surprised me. Um, so I asked whether 
it was a classical uh, whether no they didn't have a one that came to mind or and if they did whether it was a classical philosophical problem huh. or a personal problem i'm kind of curious how you re responded to this question do you remember um i think for me it was a philosophical problem it was about um because i believed in problem of evil no that's not really an issue for wiccans um, because we don't really believe in evil. They don't really believe in evil. Hmm. Oh. Um, it's, it's more about like mind-body problem. Like how can how can your immaterial soul interact with your physical body? Ah. Because I believed in a immaterial soul and also immaterial energy. Do you believe? Like, did you believe in reincarnation? Kind of. Hmm. Yeah, and I didn't interrogate it that deeply. And it's generally not something that witches and Wiccans think about reincarnation. Hmm. It's like it is a belief that many have, but it's a very like this life focused religion so it's not something that they spend a lot of time thinking about so i didn't either i sort of thought that my energy my soul would um like dissolve into the everything and then maybe come back in another form the mist on the ocean type of yes yeah. exactly but very very vague um but yeah you're right the problem of evil was because we have mainly christians filling out the survey the problem of evil was the biggest one um which is if you're not familiar um, if God is all-loving, all-knowing, and all-powerful, why do terrible things happen? And we're talking about terrible things happening like, you know, like children getting horrible diseases or animals burning to death in forest fires. Not a, the sort of tsunami, thing that... tsunami, even yeah. wiping out a village. Exactly. That, that God could easily stop it. The people didn't do any, anything to it. It's a natural phenomenon. Yeah, that's that's what I was trying to say. Natural phenomenon, mm. not necessarily things that are a result of human action. There are terrible things that happen in this world that are natural phenomenon. Why do they happen if right. God is all those three things? That's what kept coming up for people. I mean, some of them just wrote good old problem of evil. So in the for question the, for the theologians out there possibly listening to this mm. who are hopping up and down, <laughs> they likely think that they have some good apologetics against that yes. to explain yeah. why it's not a problem. Yes. This is necessary in order for us to experience love or whatever. Yeah. I've heard a lot of different responses. That's a common one. Um, but yeah, this is a, a common problem just popping up in your average person's head. They're not like, I mean, these people are just normal people and they're coming across this sort of seemingly insoluble problem with right. the religion as it's been taught to them. So being in England, it reminds me of somebody was saying cancer in kids, really. Yeah. Who, who? Stephen Fry. Stephen I think. Fry's yeah. response to this yeah. is incredible. Yeah. Just really pithy and direct mm -hmm. because I mean I had some brilliant um Barbara said I mean brilliant horrible but you know just puts it very simply she said and this is, this kind of makes it personal and shows how this thing comes up in people's lives she said when a gunman shot a classroom of small children I knew there was no god and if there was he was useless when a gunman shot up a, a school full of yeah. children so this is this these yeah. are the sort of things that are happening in people's lives or happening in the media that they're reading about that is making them question mm -hmm. these things. That's why it's coming up. There are another couple of classic philosophical problems that I mentioned. No one apart from me had the mind-body problem, but that's because maybe we didn't have many... Um... Wiccans? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> so the problem with the creator of God, if God made the universe, who made God? It's a difficult one to answer. Oh. <laughs> I mean, again, there's probably apologetics for, but mm -hmm. this is what people are reporting. Um, free will, how can we have free will if God knows our future actions? Mm. That's a way too big subject to get in here, and it's one of my pet subjects. <laughs> free will was always sort of an obscure argument to me that when when I was you know really surrounded by mainly theists, mm -hmm. I don't think I don't think I've ever had a conversation with a theist when I was from forty on down to a young age about free will ever. Really, I don't think it ever came up. Oh well, it came up so, for some of these people. In my view, I don't think I don't think a lot of theists really. They might think that they have it. 
but they don't really explore yeah. the limitations of their hypothesis or anything like that. The last one that um, people mentioned was the argument from divine hiddenness, which is something like if God exists and he's all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful, all reasonable people should agree on his existence. Mm -hmm. But there's people like us out there, so mm -hmm. what's that about? Mm -hmm. Sure. Or the classic outsider test for faith question. Everyone's believing yeah. in these different gods. They're wildly different. How, how could a God allow that to happen? Yeah. That, that seems to be an indication that they're probably, yeah, that this is a hidden God and it's, it's likely observing this confusion. Why would this, why would it allow this confusion if it really existed? Yeah. I think, um, I mean, I just, I was really surprised because I thought people were going to say it was a personal problem, you know, like oh, uh, right. the church was too homophobic for me or yeah, like actually something that, like that, that. Now that's interesting because so many theists, I think when, when this happens to me quite a bit, I, I say I don't believe. Well, what happened to you? Yes. Yeah. Did you get abused when you were an altar boy in the church? No. Mm. I had a loving family. I had a loving uh, upbringing. The neighborhood was great. Church was all, like church was well, it wasn't awesome. I, I hated <laughs> going to it, but it wasn't it wasn't abusive in any yeah. way. Yeah. Well, maybe in some ways, but like, like physically abusive. Yeah. There was some maybe some emotional or mental abuse, I suppose, but. Um, that's a lot of people's go-to is you must have been personally harmed and that's why you don't believe. Yeah. And th this survey doesn't seem to bear that no. out. No, yeah. So we 20.6% of people said personal problem, 46.3% said classical philosophical problem, which I think is huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very surprising. Although it could be, I mean, again, the data might be skewed because, you know, it's us sharing it. We're interested in philosophy. We're sharing it with our friends who are interested in philosophy. Good point. All 848 of our friends. Good point. <laughs> we got to broaden that survey Yeah. Out. Um, so next sort of question that really stuck out as me as being surprising, I asked, what did you imagine the worst case scenario might be if you let go of your faith beliefs? And I made a, um, it's a multiple choice um so there were four options. You could tick more than one if you wanted. And the ones that I came up with were I would lose my connection to my close family, I'd be ostracized by my community, I would lose my sense of meaning and purpose, or I would lose income or career. Mm. That, that's just what I was like spitballing. Those are the things I thought maybe people would be scared of. Mm. And you see like lots of people were 49.9% of people said that they were, they were scared they'd lose their connection to their close family. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, not at all. And then a, a further 30.7, uh, they were scared of being ostracized by the community. Those are much, much more fear of that type of thing than fear of losing income or career, which makes sense. But what really surprised me when I started scrolling through, because there was another box, um, people were taking that. Like, I was going to ask you if there was another yeah, box, because you only this? offered four choices. Yeah, well, those are the only ones I could think of. Um, I don't actually know if there was another box. Maybe it was just a, a gap where they could fill it out. But what mm. I saw in the space where people could write what they wanted to, the word hell, just that word. Hell, that was my fear. Hell. Oh yeah. Which just blew me away because I. That actually doesn't surprise me either. Really. Yes. Well, being intimately involved with recovering from religion, a common thread that seems to come up from a lot of, a lot of people who reach out to that group, they're not. There are doubting believers that reach out to the group. Mm. However, there are a lot of atheists who reach out to the group who want to who want to explore their fear of hell. Wow. They're they're. They're dogged by it. It follows them. Forty years after realizing and coming to the conclusion that there's probably no God, 
that fear persists. Yeah, then they're not alone. Um, I mean, there was one of the respondents, Heather. She said, "I have, a, I had a massive fear of hell and eternal punishment." She had to see a therapist about it. That's how bad it got. Yeah. So. It's a common concern that a lot of people have. It's so hard for me to even imagine what that would be like as someone who wasn't raised believing in hell. Oh, like, to not the, fear it? No, to, to fear it. Like It's like trying to imagine what it's like to genuinely fear vampires. That's what it's like for me. Oh. I never believed in hell. I don't even have a conception of what it would be like really? to believe in hell. Which is why I didn't so put it on the you're, options. You're really fortunate I know. to have that yeah. fear. Because even I, occasionally it crosses my mind. Wow. Usually, and it's usually when I'm barbecuing and I'm like, my hand's <laughs> over the flame. And I'm barbecuing something up. Um, I feel that heat, and I think, gosh, do I have evidence for this God? No. Am I justified in being afraid of hell? No. So I literally have to like question myself about why I'm afraid of that. So it's persistent. Yeah, I guess because it, it starts it's, so young, like it's hard to get rid of something that it, you learn about when it, you're. It, it's it's really like the imagery of it and how it's drilled into you, and it's it's so pervasive. It comes up a lot as a child and throughout your teens, and it comes up here and there. I feel like this is something, because I wasn't aware of it. I speak to lots of atheists, um, but I wasn't aware of it. Maybe it's something that people are embarrassed about and don't want to talk about because they're like, well, I'm an atheist. I shouldn't be scared of hell. I think, that, I think that very well could be a part of it. Yeah. There might be a stigma among my peers if I talk about how I'm still afraid of hell. It's almost yeah. like admitting that you, are chi- you still have your childhood blanket with you, yeah. but the opposite. Like, I'm still porting around this this legacy fear yeah and and i'm not i'm just going to keep it to myself because other people would laugh at you laugh at me if i disclosed it however the big reveal here is that if you were in a room of 10 other people more than likely there are other atheists that also have that yeah fear. there was certainly a lot amongst our respondents yeah who have that fear so and like keep it keep it secret not talking about it i mean heather's doing exactly the right thing going to talk to a therapist about it i think but. talking about it is the way to overcome it yes for sure and it's scary to talk about. So if you're an atheist and you don't have a fear of hell and you encounter somebody that does, listen to them. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can even... I've observed people using SE on the fear of hell. Wow. On phobias, on fears. That's inclu- awesome. Including that one. And you explore with them. You know, what, what's the genesis of this? Why do you think... What would change your mind? How do you think people who don't think fear is real uh, got to that point? Maybe they did at one point and now they don't. What kind of steps do you think that they may have gone through to get to that point where they don't they don't fear it anymore, and now they're verbalizing what, how they might possibly get to it themselves? Yeah, for me it was a really important lesson in like remembering that the person you're speaking to might not have the same experience as you, and like their fears or their doubts might be completely different to what I mine are. Oh, sure. And you can't just assume you know what's going on for other people. Well, it's the same thing when we question people about their views. The thing that we may have found convincing for getting rid of our belief, like yeah. contradictions in the Bible, that might be the thing that we lead with because it was so powerful for us, and we assume that all I need to do is point out those contradictions to her, yeah. and, and she'll stop believing it, when contradictions aren't the reason why. Mm. So we have to be careful about, yeah, what I found fearful might be something that you just thought was like completely ridiculous. You know? <laughs> So the last sort of section of the survey, which I called resolution, um, was talking about how how this process resolved and how people, you know, took the final step into mm-hmm. being atheists or agnostics or however they identify. That would have been an interesting question. I should have asked, do you identify as an atheist or agnostic or a humanist? I mean, there are lots of possibilities there. I thought you had that question. I don't think so. No. Oh, okay. Well, go and look at the data. Mm, I have to look yourself. at it again. It's been a while. <laughs> 
Um, so I asked, um, has letting go of your faith beliefs changed any of your personal relationships? Because that was such a big fear that people had, losing mm -hmm. friends and family and community. So the largest percentage, 21.6%, said yes, it's been difficult, but overall for the best. Huh. Which I think, I mean, that captures most of the experience of atheists that I've spoken to. Yeah, and it's conceivable that they may have forgotten about some of the difficulties involved with that journey. That's true, like yeah. Their memories, that they, you know, maybe it was a little bit more harder for them than they remember it, possibly. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, if you can get through it, usually the other side is a little better, I think. There was a, a small percentage, 8.8%, um, who answered, yes, I've lost people I was close to. Mm. So, I mean, it's a real fear, and it does happen to people. Absolutely. Um, and especially, you know, we're talking about a mainly Christian group here, but one of one of my respondents um, is an ex-Muslim, and he said, I recently broke up with my fiance who's Muslim. Her family won't let her marry a non-Muslim. I'm still heartbroken. We went through miscarriages, but her faith was important to her too. Wow. Yeah. This is, I mean, I don't want to scare people, but I also don't want to sugarcoat this. People yeah. do lose relationships. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's a cost. There's absolutely yeah. a cost. It's just... Are you willing to pay pay the cost? And I think I mentioned it earlier today, but there's a conversation with a fellow that I had where he's he's we were talking about questioning and doubt, and he even mentions this might just not be the right time for me to do to do all of that because I have so much other stuff going on. He's I don't know 20 years old. He's in college. He's got a yeah. job. He's going to classes. And if I meet with him again, I think I'm going to ask him, well, when is the right time? Yeah. Would you rather wait till you graduate and now you're dating somebody? Oh, now now you're married. Now you've got two yes. kids. Oh, now yeah. you're now you're you know, when is the right time? I would, I, I'm, I think the answer is, the second you're comfortable acknowledging to yourself that you don't believe it anymore. Yeah. And coming to grips with the cost that's involved with. Letting other people know. Yeah, and that's not necessarily something you need to do right away. You don't like have you to. can figure it out in your you can own wait. head. You can be strategic yeah. about it. I mean, there's the classic situation. You're 18 years old. You're living at home. They're paying. Your parents are paying for college. Yeah. You might want to wait that one out. Yeah. I have a more, a more optimistic quote from um, someone who identified themselves as Captain Cassidy. He said, "I lost everyone except my family. I lost my marriage and all my friends as well as my community. I don't regret it though. The people who really cared about me stuck with me. The ones who didn't, good riddance to them." And that that typifies a lot of people's experience, like the power of authenticity and yeah. letting go of people who won't see you for who you are and finding people who do. Yeah. Don't you want to be around people who accept you for who you are rather than a projection of who you are, like mm. some false projection yeah. that you're that you're just projecting just to get along with other people? Yeah. And, and people might surprise you. Authenticity is really yeah. so valuable to me. And it's, it's, I think it's valuable to other people. So this is, that was um, a similar experience echoed by um, Mitchell. He said, my believing friends and family are more awkward around me, but I'm more comfortable around them now because I can be honest. He says, my wife tried to reconvert me and left her faith in the process. It's brought us even closer together. Yeah. Somebody once asked me, how would you define atheism in one word? And I said, honest. Yes. Because I think it is the most honest position. And... I, I don't feel awkward around, I'm trying not to make this about me, <laughs> so we, please jump in, but um, I don't feel awkward being around my family and friends who believe and they are aware that I don't, because I feel like I'm on solid footing to be able to, to, to explain why I don't find their arguments convincing. 
And what I found is that they don't even want to talk about it. And I suspect it's because they may not really have good reasons for holding their own view. Yeah. Or maybe they just don't want to rock the boat or they're, they're afraid that it's going to become a contentious argument. If they've watched, hopefully they've watched my videos and realized that's probably not what will yeah. happen. But I think there's a little bit of a part of that where, um, I guess I kind of just lost my train of thought. I lost the point on that one. <laughs> I found it difficult to make that switch from being someone who believed in a lot of spiritual things and identified as a Wiccan, um, telling the people who knew me as that person that I didn't believe anymore. That was really hard. Mm. But making new friends who had paranormal spiritual beliefs, any kind of beliefs, and within the first couple of chit-chats, it would come up that I was a skeptic and this mm. is what I believed. And most of the time people really respected the fact that I just told them what I believed. And mm. I wasn't like, I wasn't trying to like be careful or be nice. Cause I think there's a lot of that just like, uh huh. Right. Yeah. Tarot cards, of course. Oh, and they sure, can tell you nice. don't really believe it. Um, and they're just going along with you. And in a way, my friends who believe more kind of wooish things, um, if that's not an offensive term, which maybe it is. Uh, but yeah, people who believe in more spiritual you know, practices and things, like my podcast partner, the reason why our relationship is so great is because she knows I don't believe and we're mm. willing to chat about it. Um, and she values your honesty. Exactly, yeah. And I think oh, it's, wow. it's a rare commodity. Yeah. Yeah, and as long as you're not like rubbing it in in every opportunity yeah. either. I try not <laughs> it to. It goes a long way. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I don't believe in any gods. Oh, okay, well, I do. <laughs> Uh, where are we going for lunch? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I asked about like impacts on their life, like how their life practically changed um, when they let go of their beliefs. I asked, is anything in your life? Is there anything in your life now that would never have happened if you'd retained your faith beliefs? Sixty-eight point eight percent said yes, which is actually quite low, I think, because I mean, positive things. Just anything in your life now that would never have happened if you retained your faith beliefs. Oh, okay. Um, and I've got some really lovely answers from this. So, um, Teresa said, I suffered from childhood trauma. Discarding my faith beliefs gave me the strength and opportunity to leave toxic connections behind. Mm. Um, Micah said, I would never have come out as gay. I would have been in a loving, I, I would never have been in a loving marriage for 31 years. I would never have been open to traveling to parts of the world that didn't embrace Christianity. Oh, incredible. This is people's whole romantic lives that just would never have happened. If and they think going a whole lifetime of suppressing that. Yeah. For what? For... For social acceptance. This is, I mean, that came, there were lots of respondents who are LGBT who felt like coming out as atheist and coming out as whatever, you know, mm. their sexuality or gender identity was, they were linked because they couldn't be honest about who they were mm. until they let go of their faith beliefs. So, okay, Rebecca, what did, what advantages do you, did you find personally um, of coming what, out and embracing your skepticism, if any? Um, it's just so, but this is why I was surprised that it wasn't higher than 68.8%. I can't think of anything in my life that would be the same if I hadn't, if I hadn't, because I got involved with the skeptical community. Um, you know, I have like my whole, my kind of like my comic book work is all related to mm, these things. Mm -hmm. Like everything's related to it. But the biggest thing is just an internal change. Because when I switched my epistemology to a more skeptical epistemology, like looking, do you have evidence for these things you believe? Like, Everything. I certainly wouldn't be a vegan. It permeates everything. Yeah. You just yeah. start thinking about all these things that you do every yes. day. You can't and like, turn do it I? Off. Yeah. Yeah. It's intense. And that, that's a good thing, though. Like, this yeah. has been an amazing growth. Yeah. For myself. And it sounds like for you, too. Oh, yeah. Massively. It's very hard to, to think of anything in my life 
that hasn't been massively affected. But, but the main change is in how I think about the world. Yes. Do you think that you have more empathy for people who have those, the views that you used to have? Um, I think I think I think I probably have more empathy for them than I know many people who were raised atheists and are atheists now, and they find it very hard to understand what the experience of life. I think there might be some like. truth to that. Like if you weren't raised with a god, and then you identify as an atheist, and then you you're running to other atheists who used to believe and don't. That whole idea will kind of act the fear of hell. Yeah, they, yeah. They probably can't maybe really How relate can you to imagine? it. Yeah. I think that's one of the problems. I mean, it's amazing that we can all connect online um, and speak to atheists and agnostics and humanists all over the world. But it kind of flattens out the experience. We assume that everyone's in the same boat. I was thinking about when the book, um, mm. Alan de Botton's book, Religion for Atheists, came out. Have you read that? No. Well, it's a book about how you can take the good parts of religion um, as an atheist mm. and embrace the ritual and um, the architecture and all these things. And I remember when that came out, every British atheist I knew loved it. thought it was a brilliant book. But there was a lot of pushback from American atheists because it was like, this is inappropriate. We don't want to take things from religion. This is too close to home. Because as a, as a country, you're younger on your journey away from faith, from Christianity. Like in the UK, mm -hmm. there are a lot of people like me who are raised atheists. Um, not so many mm -hmm. in the US. So if you just assume that everyone's in the same place as you, and then you see the same thing play out with um, people from, um, you know, from Muslim backgrounds, from other places in the world, their experience of being atheist is entirely different to my experience and to your experience. And they they have different needs. And in fact, there are special organizations. If, you, if you're thinking, oh, recovering from religion sounds great, but is there something that can help me as an ex-Muslim? Yes, there is. Mm -hmm. The ex-Muslims of North America. Well, even RFR, recovering from religion, caters yeah. to everyone from around the world, regardless of what faith system you came from. And do they, or have, are currently they in. have volunteers from different faith backgrounds? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I'm in a position where I interview a lot of the people mm. who are want to volunteer for yeah. RFR. So a lot of people, I would say the majority maybe are Christian or former Christians. Yeah, they're former Christians. They're mostly <laughs> atheists. Um, I think there might be a few that are from different faith traditions, but I think it's largely either they were always atheist or they were ex, they're ex-Christians. Mm. But there's a smattering, I think, of... I think my point is something like the sort of the flavor of atheist that you are is going to be influenced. I'm looking, I'm looking at my arm right now. <laughs> it's going to be influenced by <laughs> what background you come from. And you will have a different perspective on the world and a different perspective on what it is to let go of your beliefs, depending on what kind of beliefs you let go of. And sometimes it can be tempting to just assume that all atheists think this way and all atheists, you know, are that typical, you know, I don't know, like... Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, they all think like that. Mm -hmm. And that's not true, um, because yeah. we're influenced, we're all coming from different backgrounds. And from different ages, too. Like There yeah. are a lot of people, I'm, I used to take calls for RFR, and I, I can't disclose ex specific details, but it wasn't uncommon to get calls from people who were 50, 60 years old, who were just starting to doubt, to question. Wow. And then they had regrets for not having done it earlier. Yeah. And having raised their kids and grandkids into a view that they don't think is true anymore. Oof. And they're just, they're tormented because now... They have ten people that they love, who are mired in this view that's probably not true. Yeah, it's it's very sad. But the um the overall thing on the um what in your life would be different. This was all there was a lot of positive stuff. In fact, emotional well-being is the thing that came up 
highest as the positive effect. Mm. Um, Elizabeth said coming out from under religion is like seeing the sun for the first time in days or having a huge weight lifted that you didn't even know was there. It's very freeing, breathing for the first time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That thing of breathing, that's a common metaphor that people use, and we used it in the video as we well. Do. Like, we do. Uh, yeah. Can we get into the specific? Well, the scuba diver. <laughs> yes, yes. That's such a great metaphor for it too, and getting to the surface and taking off the helmet. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> I have this theory, um, and this is based on reading a couple of um, comments like Stevens here. He said, personal responsibility. I'm not sure why, but knowing that everything in my life is up to me and that there's no invisible force guiding it is so reassuring because I know that good or bad, the results of my decisions are mine and mine alone, both su successes and failures. And I looked a bit, I mean, very briefly at the literature on this, and it seems that um, psychologists think that um, a, a general feeling of emotional well-being is strongly influenced by your sense of self-efficacy, like how much control you think you have mm. over your own life. And that seems to be what people are talking about when they're like, I could breathe for the first time. There's, there's something in that, something in taking control and taking charge yeah. and being yourself that adds up to a huge increase in emotional well-being. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. But I feel like we've been talking a lot about me, so I don't know if I <laughs> want to get into it. But um, there's been some tremendous growth for me, uh, you know, coming to grips with my non-belief and being able to like publicly speak about it and um, acknowledge my uncertainty has been liberating. Yeah. I, I, I feel more confident and capable in myself than I've ever uh, felt and that was a result of discarding those views yeah absolutely was a result of that and that, makes... that growth would not have happened if I was still in that view I'm pretty sure I, I've never heard that remarked on before and I don't know whether some sociologists of religion know that but it's something that we as an atheist community don't talk about the emotional well-being is like I mean, it seems like from the survey data I've gathered, that is one of the biggest things we have going it for us. It seems so counterintuitive, though. But I mean, I think a lot of well, it's so interesting that so many people think that they're getting all this comfort and meaning and purpose from these yeah. views, and then when they leave them, they report that they have so much more autonomy and independence, and and uh, their lives are better yeah. because they don't think that it's true. It's the complete opposite of what you would think or what you've been taught. Yeah. That you need this, you need these views. You you can't your your life means nothing if you don't think God is real. When in reality, it seems that that's just that's when the flourishing starts to happen. Exactly, and that that's the when story you realize I that we're we're again. all in this together. It's yes. it's us in this reality to make this the best that we can make it. Yeah, and people talked about um, getting involved in charity work as atheists, mm -hmm. and you know thinking more about their fellow man. Um, and how they could help and be a bit more. For sure. Yeah, it's amazing. So to kind of come back to the subject of SE as we sort of wrap up, mm -hmm. um, I asked, how do you interact with people who retain faith beliefs? Mm -hmm. And I gave a load of different options. Um, the most popular one that people choose is some multiple choice is I ask the odd question if I get the opportunity. That's 50.3%. Mm -hmm. um, I avoid the subject, came in second, mm -hmm. at 34.8%. And third, I use street epistemology to discuss faith beliefs, 23.3%. Okay. Yeah. But then remember, 74.3% have at least heard of SE. But yes. there's only 23.3 report using it. Yes. That's an interesting... It's interesting, but unsurprising. Really? Yes. Because, well, I think people are aware of SE, but to go, to, to go from understanding to implementation, mm. there's a chasm there. And I'm not entirely sure 
how to how to narrow that chasm or build more bridges across yeah. it so that people can that can do it. Maybe it's because of the perception that when I hear street epistemology, I think going out on the street and recording cop talks. Yeah. And not just using it casually during lunch when my family says something. I really think that's it because people are saying that they ask the odd question when they get the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Maybe a good thing to think about for the street epistemology community is people are already asking the odd question. Should we have like a list of odd questions that are good to ask? Mm. Or just like ideas that people can bounce around? So there isn't that could pressure hurt. to be like, you have to go and do this all formally and you have to work through stage one, two, and three. It, it certainly couldn't hurt. Uh, there's a, a wonderful survey on the street epistemology website that uh, a guy named Ben Diesel put together mm. where um, it's some just some general questions that, that are extremely non-threatening. They're really interesting. So for example, do you think that we're sharing the same reality? Is nice. it important for you to believe something that's true or something that gives you comfort? General questions like that. where you, So you can start with very broad. You don't have to start with how confident on a skill from 0 to 100 that God is real. Yeah. You, you don't have to approach it so rigorously. And you can still employ this idea of asking respectful questions. Yeah. I think that would be really good if you just had a list of those. And you have mm-hmm. that article up on your phone. <laughs> I, you know, I also have, uh, I didn't bring it with me, but when I give workshops on this approach, I have a, a sheet with some questions for the various stages of the process. So for the what stage, when you're exploring the claim, I have a good five or six questions and then so forth throughout the thing. And then if people are brave enough to start asking more SE style questions instead of whatever questions they're coming up with now, they get a taste for what it's like. And maybe they might think about doing more, you know, going into more detail. Oh, possibly. Yeah, that's that's what, that's what we're thinking is that it, once you get a taste for it, like, oh, I'm just asking some just very, very basic questions. Mm. And when you see the level of engagement that, that those questions are eliciting, and we were talking about that earlier, that, that yeah. those thoughtful moments, it might encourage you as the questioner to dig a little bit deeper and start getting more advanced with your questions and probing a little bit more. You can build your own confidence in it if you start very basic. Well, I think, um, obviously, SE is influencing people and how they talk about... I have a brilliant quote here um, from someone who identifies himself as tortoise. Um, I'll admit that I have been snarky or sarcastic as I was finding my way out of the belief. It did not go well. I'm so glad I stumbled upon Anthony Magnabosco and SE, as this has helped me greatly to interact in a more respectful and engaging way, whilst helping them to look at their beliefs in a different way. Mm. This is a really good testimonial for That's SE. That's lovely. That's yeah. lovely. I greatly appreciate it. And that. she wasn't the only one. Mm. Well, I, I see a lot of that kind of feedback in my email inbox, on my social media messages, and even on the comments of my YouTube videos. People saying, watching you engage with people in this manner, and other people who do this, I'm mm. not the only one doing it, or even observing a dialogue where somebody's using SE, it's it's profoundly changing how I interact myself, and it's calming me down. My interactions are better now that I'm aware of this approach. Yeah. I may not be the best at it, and I make some mistakes, and sometimes I argue and debate, but for the most part, I'm noticing a difference in the, in the conversations. It actually reminds me of an anecdote that I heard um, mm. from somebody who said that. Uh, I, th- I think it was written by a, guy, a, 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 a man who has a brother, and both of them were inter- inter- interacting with their father, who was a believer, where the, blo- the, the one brother was using debate, the other bro- brother was using street epistemology. Oh, wow. And the father commented to the brother using street epistemology, I, I really love that conversation. I really think you have a better understanding of my views, and you've challenged me in a way that I don't ever think I've been challenged before. Wow, and the awesome. brother sh- shared this this experience with me 
the brother shared that with me, and it seemed like the other brother was taking notice of his father's interaction with his other yeah. brother, and maybe even considering changing his approach because of it. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's really, really cool. Yeah. So the last question I have, and this is kind of like the biggest question. This is the one question I really wanted to ask, and then the rest, all the other questions, like I, I you mm -hmm. know, I came up with afterwards. But the big question I wanted is, what do you wish someone had told you when you were in the midst of reevaluating your beliefs? Ooh. Because I just thought it would be so um, amazing to have these little um, these messages that we could send back in time to our past selves, you know, imaginatively. Like, what what do you wish someone had said That's to you? That's a great question. Or would you wish you'd just received, like, on a little scrap of paper in an envelope when mm. you were in that hard time? What do you wish someone had said? And there's some really amazing, amazing responses. Um, I'll just, I'll just give you three that really moved me. Um, the could, first... could people see this detail if they drill down enough? Or is it yeah, is that, these, too, is that these, too detailed? No, these, oh, these I'm going to make available as a... These are all um, people who have ticked a box to say it's okay to share their details, and some of them are anonymous and some have names associated with them. Um, but I'm going to make a Twitter account because I have um, 629 of these. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, and I just thought it would be fun, fun and important actually sure. to put them out into the world so that maybe someone who's struggling with this could could see oh, it pop sure. up on their twitter feed and you can share it with people and it just it's it's almost like a stream of consciousness i love it the atheist community of what we wish we'd been told yeah would you like to hear what Doug i would said? love to okay. I, i'm just thinking if you do that try to if, if, just a suggestion maybe put a hashtag with it so they're ah, all tied idea. together yeah. so we could just click the hashtag yeah and see them all you're good for the hashtags. Okay. <laughs> he the knows hashtag. his hashtags. I'm the hashtag guy. So Doug said, this is his message to him when he was at the stage in his life. Doug, just let that shit go. No, you're not stupid like they told you every time you made a mistake. No, no matter how much you pray, things will not change. You have to change how you deal with death and your anger. So remember, you're a good person. Go do good things. Just reading that back, like... Another beautiful one from Heather. You deserve to be loved whether you believe in God or not. You're not a bad person. Mm. And here from Diana. Here's a bus ticket and a couple of hundred bucks. There's a job waiting for you in Pasadena. <laughs> oh, <he laughs> too. oh, that's great. The thing that kept coming wow. up again and again were people saying it's okay. Yeah. Like every other comment either had that in it or it was just it's okay. I'm, rem I'm reminded now of your poem. Yeah, so what I did is I took... Um, I took a bunch of the responses, 24 of them, uh, rearranged them, but didn't change the messages and made them into a poem, mm. which you will have heard if you watch the video. Um, and that will be included in the report as well at the end. Yeah. Because this is, this is not science, it's art. This is a portrait of it's our community. It's lovely art. It was, it's, yeah, it's art, you know, coming from, yeah, the human experience. Yeah. And our experience. And I think one of the things that this really brought home for me is how important it is community building is as an atheist community, like in real life communities as well, not just online. Um, there are lots of lots of groups doing this um, and we'll have some links you can find in the show notes for different places that you can access an atheist community because one of the big things that people said is that they felt alone through this mm. process and you do not have to be alone. Yeah, the more out and visible we can be and the more diversity that we can show people so a lot of people are attracted to the watching the theists get destroyed in an argument. Some people who are leaving these faith beliefs, that's what they want, they're, yeah. they're, right? But then there are other people who look at that and say, 
I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that angry atheist. Yeah. So it's important for us to show these various sides to what it is to be an atheist so that we can appeal to people, right? So they can, they can see that there's diversity and you know, there's options for you when you when you decide that I yeah. can't believe this anymore, that it's not just one sort of frame of mind that you that you have to be in if you don't believe these things anymore. I think the other big thing about atheist community, we need to create space for people who are suffering with feelings of hopelessness and despair and nihilism. And there weren't many. There were like hardly any, in fact, who responded to me. But the ones who did, who were expressing those sort of feelings, mm. obviously it was really upsetting to me and I was, I was worried about them and I gave them the best advice I could. But um, places like Recovering From Religion are invaluable to them. And I think we just need a general acknowledgement that these people are in our community. We don't need to hide them away. We yeah. need to look after them. To be clear, uh, there's a limitation to how far it, uh, Recovering From Religion mm. will go with a caller. Yeah, they they they're very good about realizing they're very good about realizing their own limitations. In fact, the very first call that I took when I was a helpline agent was somebody who was suicidal. Wow! And it was a little bit overwhelming. Yeah, I can they, they prepared me for that during training, but we of course referred them to people who were more uh, trained and able to help folks like that. And they would have all the details to be able to pass someone like that on to someone who could. Yes, help them. we made yeah. sure that you know when we transferred them over, there's another person there, and the call doesn't get dropped, and we get yeah. their number beforehand just in case. And so yeah, there, there yeah. are professionals, there are therapists, there are people who know what they're doing, um, mm -hmm. who can who can help you if you are suffering from those feelings. But also, I think as an atheist community, it's important to be to be honest about the fact that some of us are are struggling and to 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 support them as much as and we get can. real help. Yes. Yeah real psychological professional help and it seems like there's less of a stigma perhaps with with uh, psychotherapy or definitely or, uh, yeah getting getting a counseling maybe in this community than there might be in other yeah more I mentioned um, I've spent a couple of years in therapy it was amazing for me and when I talk about it with fellow atheists everyone, like people are like yeah me too it's been great yeah. and I maybe maybe that's why we've got such great emotional well-being mm. <laughs> we're reporting on our survey so we should be the perfect community for helping these people and again as I say it's only a tiny tiny percentage but um, with our superpowers of emotional well-being <laughs> don't worry we can take care of you <laughs> we're there for you if you need it and if we're unqualified to help you we'll make sure you get the resources yeah generally speaking so I think that's about everything. We really covered a lot there. That was good. I'm really, yeah. That this was a, a, another fun project that we that we worked on. Yeah, I've just got to cook up a new one now. Oh really? What's on the bread? <laughs> I'm never gonna let you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really love I love your artwork. And uh, for those of you, of you that don't know, Rebecca's written a few books about skepticism and teaching critical thinking, primarily aimed towards younger people. Is that right? Well, I don't say? know. Um, I wrote How to Be Reasonable, which is kind of my skeptic. Well, book. I guess when I see cartoons, I think yeah. teenagers and middle schoolers. I wrote it for me as a twenty-something. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, like, there's a whole there's a whole scene in the zine world of you know hmm. proper grown-ups read comic books. You but know? I, I see so many posts from people <laughs> saying, "Are there is there any literature out there for teenagers and young people?" I think it would definitely be appropriate for a teenager. I send them your way usually. I send them to your website. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, let's definitely work together again. We'll get this. Hopefully, we'll get some good feedback too. Yeah, and please. people willing to pick up the the ball and run with it some more on the data that's out there. We'll have all contact details, and please follow at How We Let Go on Twitter and um, visit the website, which again will be in the show notes. All this stuff is available to you. We'd love to hear from you and hear what you think. Awesome! This was really fun, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you. 
If you need support in your journey out of faith, or would like to support people who do, check the show notes for links to recoveringfromreligion.org or faithtofaithless.com. That's their UK equivalent. If you're interested in finding out more about this project, visit howweletgo.org to dig into the raw data, read my detailed report, and watch the animated video. And please follow at howweletgo on Twitter to read our respondents' messages to their past selves. If you want to hear more from me, please check out my podcast, The Seeker and the Skeptic, in which I chat, bicker and banter with my spiritually inclined friend Kat about all sorts of fringe topics. You can find out more about me and my work at RebeccaOnPaper.com and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at RebeccaOnPaper. You can find Anthony online at AnthonyMagnaBosco.com and follow him on Twitter or Instagram at MagnaBosco. And if you haven't already watched Anthony in action practicing street epistemology, drop everything and head to his YouTube channel right now. You'll find it by searching his name or following the link in the show notes. The Street Epistemology Podcast is a production of Street Epistemology International. You can donate or learn more about this nonprofit organization at streetepistemologyinternational.org. The views, guests, and topics expressed here or not expressed here do not necessarily represent those of the organization. 